Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hi, Gary. We've got a great show. You've got your friend, Steve Schmidt, joining us, which should be terrific. Yeah, a lot uh, of fun and very smart. Yeah, I mean, Steve is like a walking encyclopedia about American politics. <laughs> yeah, he sure and, is. You know, and certainly has lots of energy on the topic for anybody who's seen him on television. But he's had a career as a Republican political consultant, a commentator on most of the news programs. And then on top of it is, I think he helped you out at GE too, is that? Oh yeah, for many years. Led us through uh, several crises, including uh, the situation in Fukushima in Japan during that tsunami and nuclear meltdown, really. He was quite essential to us. So before we get on to Steve, let's talk a little bit about some items in the news. So it was interesting this past weekend with shouts of America needs to get back to work and this is a hoax. There were hundreds of protesters in a number of cities across America, Annapolis, Austin, Indianapolis, Salt Lake City, Carson City, most of these are state capitals. You know, what they're arguing about is the continuance of the stay-at-home orders. And believe it or not, we're even seeing some of these kinds of protests abroad in India and Brazil. (laughs) And in some ways, the Brazilian and U.S. protesters were seemingly somewhat egged on by backers of the two presidents there, Bolsonaro in Brazil and Trump in the U.S. So one, as additional months go by, my guess is we're going to continue to see some pressure. So number one, what do you think about these protests? And then number two, what's kind of the implications for the rest of us as we start to contemplate coming back from all of this? It's an interesting study, the protests themselves, in the power of a spectacle, mm-hmm. right? because these were protests in the hundreds, not the thousands, mm-hmm. but yet they find their way onto the front pages of a lot of American newspapers. So in this case, I would question the media worthiness of these. And I do think Trump particularly egged them on in appropriate way, calling for in, only in Democratic state to liberate their states. Minnesota, Virginia, Michigan, I believe, and in Virginia mentioning the Second Amendment, which I thought was really uh, irresponsible of him. Nonetheless, you look at the polls by Pew and others of where Americans stand on the stay-at-home orders, and the vast majority are in favor. They understand it, and they're willing to continue it. Now, the small majority has made some noise here, egged on by far-right and paid for in some cases by very far-right interest groups. So I think it's an interesting dynamic with, in some ways, it's the media repeating some disinformation that many Americans are in favor of this, and when in fact they're not. So so do you think this is part of the challenge of today's news media in general, where Mm -hmm. there's a tendency to want to have balance without necessarily taking into consideration what's really the intensity and volume? Right. Well, look, it's a lot more exciting to see people visually anyway at state capitals and at businesses and at CEOs' homes holding signs and honking their horns and talking about tyranny and liberation than 
taking pictures of my wife and I playing backgammon in our pajamas, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and trying to pay attention to the order and, and live by them. And I just think the media has to pay attention yeah. to that. Yeah. We talked about previously about disinformation in our society. And I really think you ask about companies, Mike, on what they need to do. I think it's going to be up to companies to help fight some of this. Uh-huh. Most employees, if the, the national polls are true, are in favor of staying home and trying to make sure that we push this thing to a point where it's safe to come back in stages. The far right knows how to manipulate the media in this country. They have their own media. Uh So does the far left. I'm not, it's not making it political, right? And I hope the folks in the center see these things for what they are. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, sort of the converse of all of that noise, we have some things that are changing in the workplace Mm -hmm. in places where arguably there are essential workers providing some real needs for the rest of us. So there there are a number of slaughterhouses, meat plants in the U.S. and Canada that were pressured in the past week, JBS beef plant in Greeley, Colorado, which has like 6,000 employees, ended up having to close this past week because a number of employees showed up with COVID-19. Smithfield shut down its pork facility Mm -hmm. in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, it provides about 5% of the nation's pork. Wow. And 16% of its 3,700 employees tested positive wow. for the coronavirus. And then my old employer, Cargill, actually idled the second shift just down the road from me here in Canada at High River. They have like about a little over, I think, 2,000 workers. But due to an increased number of COVID-19 cases and concerns voiced by the president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. So beyond concern about whether there's going to be enough meat for all of us to eat, what kind of rights do you see workers having in these situations? How should management and communicators listen and respond? Our friend Bob Feldman, who's uh, the vice chair of ICF Next, and a really smart guy about this kind of thing, wrote a column, I think it was in Wired this week, about needing your own Fauci Mm -hmm. inside your company. What Bob meant was, and he's spot on, is you need a scientist inside your public health expert, whatever whatever you can get your hands on, to talk to you about when it is going to be safe to have people come back to work, particularly in manufacturing situations where people exchange parts, components, pass things on, or in very close quarters. And I think companies have to be very very careful about this and follow the science. One that I I saw over the weekend too, Mike, was in North Dakota, which is another of the you don't have to stay home states. My old company, GE Wind Turbine Factory with 900 workers, 110 tested positive. They had to shut the place down. Clearly, something is not working in these plants. And I think workers should be voicing their opinions There should be, if you're encouraging an open reporting culture inside your company, boy, people ought to be using it if things are not safe. This idea of finding your Fauci inside your own organization, I think is so important. Yeah. And in another workplace, you know, Amazon. Amazon has done terrifically during this particular crisis, right? They've actually hired more than 100,000 new workers during the pandemic. Its stock value has actually done well, just as other retailers have seen their shares crater. But there have been reports increasingly 
and some fear of workers around the warehouses. And a number of state attorney generals have said the company sick policy, sick leave policies are inadequate. There was actually a French court that also took them to mm. task. But, you know, you take the meat cases and the Amazon cases, and it kind of begins to raise some interesting questions, even as we begin to look down the road, right? At the point when we're able to perhaps come back to work, you know, if an employer is perceived as getting back to work too early, you know, I think that that could be detrimental in terms of employee relations. Maybe there could even be protests. Add on to that, Johns Hopkins University's Center for Health Security this past weekend put out a sort of a guideline to governors about when to return people back to work. And it kind of suggests a go slow, more phased in approach. And I know that a number of employers that I've been in contact with, where we have colleagues who work, people mm-hmm. are beginning to talk about, it. gee, if we go back, it's going to be, you know, we're going to have a team A and a team B so that we can create greater distance. People are going to come in at different hours. Some businesses talking about a three-day shift, others talking about four-day shifts. And then what percentage of employees are going to want to remain home. There are lots of issues out there. I'm just wondering, what are you hearing? What are, you, yeah. what are the types of things that you think these companies have to think about as if the volume level and the noise level starts to come back and government starts to give us a clue that it's okay to go back? What I'm hearing is this is a crisis in which that affects people inequitably. It's affecting people differently. We've seen things about the African-American population and the fatality rate. But of course, for people who need to go to work, who work on hourly wages, who may not have health care benefit, can't afford to stay home, don't have paid sick leave, you better take care of those people first. And I'm hearing a lot of that from the people I talk to, Mike, is we have to treat that population with care and carefully plan that out. The white collar population, so to speak, can take care of itself in many ways. In other words, look at Amazon. They seem to be doing well, right? So the white collar folks are doing well working from home so far. So that kind of staging and that kind of distinction between employees on who physically needs to be in a workplace. At the same time, however, Amazon has these distribution centers, right? That, I mean, that's an example between the folks who are running the company and the folks who are delivering packages. Huge difference. I just say, again, go back to find your Fauci and you cannot update your people enough during this. Yeah, well, it's also interesting because clearly the reason there's a disproportionate hit on certain minority groups is oftentimes there are larger numbers in the work population. Yes. They are in manufacturing plants or in food plants where they're side by side with other colleagues. Yep. There's more personal interaction. And then you think about delivery people who put their life on the line every day to go into places where they've got to have some interaction with people. And even though they might be dropping something off in a lobby or at a front door, they're actually more at risk than a lot of uh, the white collar population in terms of incidental contact with somebody who could be carrying the coronavirus. Yeah, and the the economic distinctions among how this virus affects people are vast. People with comorbidities, Mike, because they haven't had access, they can't afford nutrition, good meals. 
people who can't afford health care, uh, et cetera, the preponderance of deaths mm -hmm. that we've seen, it really has affected people differently. So for companies, this idea of taking care of the most vulnerable among your population and doing it right, I'm also talking, Mike, to a lot of people about their earnings for the quarter. Right. I'm really impressed with the people, at least I talk with, that have really taken short-termism out of the equation. Mm -hmm. They're doing their best, believe me. They're spending what they need to spend, and they're shutting down what they need to shut down from a health standpoint, and quarter be damned. I think there's a lot that's happening that's good, but the hardest decisions, to your point about the return, are yet to happen. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think probably some companies will end up taking even surveys of employees. My guess is yeah. you know, there've already been some suggestions that as much as a third of the population, particularly white collar population, may opt to remain home for a longer period of time. You and I know we work for a big university. Mm -hmm. I think students are in the fall opting to stay home and faculty as well. So it affects not only the companies around the world, but other major enterprises, people are going to make their own decision. And the virus will make the decision for them, Mike. I've heard that said by Dr. Burks and others and Fauci, and I think that's true. Yeah. Well, and the fact is, it's hard to defeat something you can't see, right? Yeah. I've seen some interesting shows recently on, you know, how can we better share information so that we can better isolate the virus? And it's a near impossible task. Let me ask you something, Mike, to that point. Is it the responsibility of companies to be the journalists and the information providers about the science of this thing? Because there's so much misinformation out there. Well, if you were leading a CCO of a big company, how much would you be talking about the fundamentals of this? Why testing is necessary? What does the antibody test do for you? Well, I think it goes back to what's the greatest threat. Yeah. And, you know, how do you isolate it in such a way that's smart? It seems to me, actually, this is a golden opportunity for those in the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, very uh, much. You know, that have suffered a little bit in terms of reputation in recent years. There's a great opportunity here for them to kind of put a stake in the ground around the importance of science and the importance of where do we go next to make sure that people aren't in harm's way. And I've seen some things, really, the pharmas have put competition aside and really working together on all the things we're going to need here. And yeah. I think if you were looking for uh, an industry that could really change the public view of them, it's yeah. pharma, and they seem to be doing it all right. Yeah, so well, in fact, uh, Sally Sussman has been out there our friend at Pfizer talking about oh, right. you know, science will win. But I do like the fact there are a number of industries that are approaching the current situation in kind of a post-competitive environment yep. uh, view. You know, before we go on to our guest, I want to actually make a little bit of a shout out. It's not totally germane, but Global Citizens put together this Together at Home concert where they had lots of different music pop stars and for one night, the U.S. Uh, late night hosts, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, and Stephen Colbert worked together to host the <laughs> event. And it was kind of fun. I mean, it started off with Stevie Wonder doing his tribute to Bill Withers singing Lean On Me. Nice. Uh, it also was different in the sense that you had all of these current day stars singing old classics. You had Jennifer Lopez doing her rendition of Barbara Streisand's People. You had <laughs> Lady Gaga doing Nat King Cole's Smile. Lizzo did Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. Oh, nice. But what I really loved was the clothes. And the clothes was 
pretty dramatic and amazing. It had Lang Lang, the classical pianist, mm-hmm. on the piano, and then singing, it had Andrea Bocelli, Celine Dion, Lady Gaga, and John Legend. Oh, and, wow. And the song was appropriately The Prayer. The Prayer, you know, was somewhat undoubtedly the right message for the current pandemic and maybe the craziness of this political year, right? Yeah, I think so. So to shed some light on the craziness today we have <laughs> on the show, our friend Steve Schmidt. So let's go to the interview. Our guest today on The Crux is the widely respected commentator, communications leader, and political strategist, Steve Schmidt. Uh, Steve's been a friend of mine for, for many, many years, and he worked when I was at GE, when he was Steve was at Edelman. He helped GE navigate some of the toughest waters we faced, and um, I loved working with Steve. His advice was always informed. It was clear. Most of all, it was actionable, something that we could actually put into uh, to use, and I always counted on Steve to be honest and direct with me in the leadership of, of GE, and he was a, a great confidant and counselor to Jeff Immel. Uh, you may know Steve, um, you see him occasionally now uh, talking about politics, and we're going to have a discussion about that today. But if you know anything about him, you really have to admire him for his courage. For example, he was one of the first Republicans to speak out on behalf of gay rights in a party that had long avoided that subject. Many others have benefited from Steve's counsel as well. Over the past two decades, he's played a really influential role in American politics and helped navigate some of the most high-stakes corporate crises and business strategy challenges of our time. He's a senior advisor to President George W. Bush, presidential candidate and Senator John McCain, and former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. So today, Steve is president of his own consulting firm, SES Strategies. Today, uh, we want to talk to Steve about the Lincoln Project, which is a group of Republican leaders and strategists dedicated to defeating Donald Trump in November. So, Steve, with that long introduction, uh, welcome to the crux. Thanks, Gary. So I don't know how much of that's true, but thanks for all the nice words. Good to be with you, Mike, too. All all true, Steve. So let's jump right into the Lincoln Project, where you and are are an advisor, along with other well-known Republican names like George Conway and Rick Wilson. Full disclosure for our listeners, I'm a supporter and contributor to the group, but Steve, why don't we start with you telling us how the Lincoln Project came together? Well, a number of us, John Weaver, who had worked for Senator McCain as well, Rick Wilson, a Republican consultant, Reed Galen, Jennifer Horn, the former chairwoman of the New Hampshire Republican Party, a number of other people. We had talked, we had shared, we all found each other, I think, during this period where the numbers of people who objected to Donald Trump was once large and, and, and vast, and <laughs> today inside the Republican Party or former Republicans is, is minuscule and small. Most, most people have accommodated, in our view, the unconscionable, and the country's been harmed grievously for it, and I think we see that playing out. But the purpose of the Lincoln Project, which I was one of the founders was, was to put together a uh, political organization that, um, you know, over time would do a couple of things. You know, certainly uh, it would play a role in this election, advocating uh, for the defeat of and 
the renewal of the country with the new choice for president. And also, we hope in the years ahead that it can ignite something of a reemergence of a conservative tradition, one, and two, also be a voice for decency in our politics to be able to, in time, be disagreeable, to, to disagree on issues without being disagreeable. And so yeah, great you know, the greatest president in the country's history was, was Abraham Lincoln and uh, the first Republican president, of course. And so we take his name and the work that we you know, are involved in is, is hopefully going to be able to be appealing to either that three, four, five percent. And that's what mm-hmm. Steve Bannon said he was worried about with this project. You know, that three, four, five percent of Republicans out there, you know, who are open to rejecting the Trump candidacy and, you know, might be open for the first time in their lives to voting for the Democratic nominee for president. Wow. So, Steve, what's what's interesting is, you know, normally you hear about uh, loyal opposition. This is really kind of loyal loyalists. I've seen some of your uh, online ads, uh, television ads. Do you plan to do paid media through the election? That's the plan of the organization, sure. And it, and I think that you you can look for the for the project to be involved in a number of Senate races too. And that's one of the points that that we try to make from the beginning is that. If we go back a couple of years, there, there certainly it was certainly the case that when Donald Trump was inaugurated, there were three parties in Washington. There was a Republican Party, a Democratic Party, and then there was the Trump Party. Now, the Republican Party has been consumed completely by the Trump Party, and there's so many Republican senators who know better, who have been cowardly in their actions, have not been fidelitous to their oaths, have turned a blind eye to this, have abdicated their Article Two uh, responsibilities, or excuse me, have uh, abdicated their Article One responsibilities in the Constitution, uh, have not been faithful to the votes in our view, and we're we're going to certainly talk about that in some of the tightest Senate races in the country. So, so thinking a little bit about the the Senate races, given COVID nineteen, does the political map change much as you look at some of those key races? I I don't think that anybody can look at this right now through a political lens and, and say what's going to happen. Other, other than, you know, I'll make a couple of observations. Is when you're looking at hours long lines for food, cars lined up for miles in the state of Texas, when you look at the fact that people are now running out of money or have run out of money, can't buy food. You look at the impact of the shuttered economy uh, working class people as we move downrange, and we look at the incompetency of the response by the federal government. For example, the necessity for there to be testing capabilities, which is clearly the domain of the federal government, so not the not the states, as the a states, as a prerequisite yeah. for being able to to get the country back on its feet. If you if you just look at how backwards. The response of the country is right from an international embarrassment perspective, the richest country in the world and the total failure at the federal level to mitigate this, to deal with it. The craziness that you see on the right from the Laura Ingrams of the world talking about if people were in favor of liberating, in her words, Iran and Afghanistan and Iraq, <laughs> will they stand by and, you know, not enjoy, you know, not join in the liberation of California and Virginia? When you, when you look at all the craziness, mm-hmm. when, you, when you consider that 
you know, by the weekend, you know, we'll be up over 50,000 deaths, right? We're, yeah. we're going to exceed the number of deaths uh, that were sustained in the Vietnam War. To predict what will, what will happen from that politically, uh, I think is a fool's errand. Yeah. Uh, other, other than to say this, is that there's two types of elections, right? There's change and there's more of the same. Mm-hmm. And I think a vote for more of the same when we consider the total mess of the Trump administration, right? Uh, his incapacity at an intellectual level, at a moral level, policy level, at, at every level. He exhibits every conceivable trait that you would never want to see a, in a leader in a life and death crisis. Right. Um, the, the choice for the country is going to be how do we recover out of this? And it's going to take years. And does he have any capacity to lead that recovery? And I, I think the answer to that question is no. I think the American people understand the answer to that question is no, which is why you see the leads of the size you see right now for Biden in states all across the country. And Steve, to that point about a change election, is Joe Biden the answer? You, you, the Lincoln Project has endorsed Vice President Biden. And so is he enough of a change? And does, does the Lincoln Project, obviously you've endorsed him, does he have the capacity to lead us in the right direction? And will you, and by the way, Steve, will you actively campaign? Will, will folks from the Lincoln Project actively campaign for Biden in the fall? Yeah, I, look, the, the organization intends to be fully supportive of him in the fall, to be robust in, in, in making the case. You know, look, I, I, Joe Biden has been a national figure in our politics since 1972, 77 years old. He's the oldest nominee uh, of a major party in American American history. You, he will be the president or Donald Trump will be the president. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the choice. Right. And there, there shouldn't be any pretense or pretend about that there's any type of different choice in that. And what we what we know in this country about Joe Biden is and, and I think it comes down. I think this matters in this race. Right? It's, a, it's a good man versus a bad man, honest man versus a dishonest man, a competent leader of government versus an incompetent leader of government. What's always been true in the country is that almost providentially. The right leaders have emerged at the right moments in American mm-hmm. history. Dwight Eisenhower was a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army <laughs> in 1939 who hadn't been promoted in 13 years. He was junior to most of the generals that served under him in, in World War II. He later um, led, yes. We looked yep. at Abraham Lincoln or, or Ulysses S. Grant. You know, I, I think what the, what the country needs in this, in this moment is some wisdom. and somebody who understands that we're not each other's enemies, we're each other's friends, that we're all in it together. Somebody that doesn't look as, at his opponents as a- enemies and, and looks at the American people and, and understands uh, deeply that he would be the president of all the people, including the people that didn't vote for him. And what we, what we have right now, I think, is a factional leader that stoked a cold civil war in the country. And, you know, look, we, we see this playing out now in the state capitals. When you, when you look at the protests that are taking place in the state capitals and, and you look at the nuttiness of it all, mm-hmm. the insanity, and, and, and tragically, you know, some of these people are going to get sick. Some of them are going to die. You know, but there will be sickness that comes from these, from these events. It's zero sum, right? You know, exactly. I, when I look at those groups, I want them to have as little political influence in this country as humanly possible. 
Right. They're taking the country down mm-hmm. a bad path to a, to a truly crazy place. And every one yeah. of those people are Trump supporters. And, uh, and I love this phrase, cold civil war, Steve. I mean, I think that's exactly right. But uh, So we can see, and in my view, I, I completely agree on all of this, as I, I disclosed. And you talked about the Trump party and the Republican party. We know the Republican party has been hollowed out. But when you look at polls, you know, 75 to 80 percent of Republicans say they support Trump. Why yeah. is that? still the case given the performance well i i think that politics is so tribalized in the in the country and and let's be clear right the 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 left of the democratic party is filled with its fair share of crazy people also and i think that there are millions of people in this country who look at trump and and they look at him and they're appalled by him they wouldn't want him within a country mile of their kids uh, they, they're disgusted by him, they're embarrassed by him, but they look at him and they go, I, I don't know what to tell you. He's our guy. He's our yeah. guy. And, and that guy is the last line of defense between me and these people over here who hate my guts. And so the condescension that is heaped down on working class people in this country by the elites, the profound disconnect, I think, between the coasts and the country, mm-hmm. um, all of this. Right. Has an enormous impact. I think it people, you know, people's views for that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, people look at Trump and they say, well, directionally, you know, his toughness on China, even though from a policy implementation perspective, it's been self-defeating and foolish that at least he's trying to do something about it. Right. Right. You know, the, the Trump exists in this strange duality where he's the most prolific liar we've ever had as president. But he's strangely also the most honest president we've ever had, right? No, no other person's words ever pass from his lips. There's no unexpressed thoughts. He's exactly what he appears to be. And after a generation of people tearing down public service, tearing down the government, you know, the Republican Party changing from a limited government party to an anti-government party, you know, someone who just wants to blow up the whole thing, and people who have been habituated to understand or to believe or led to believe that it can't get any worse are open to the type of nihilistic message that you see from Trump and from other candidates, which is yeah. to burn it all down, essentially. Yeah, it's a great observation. What I've, what I've had a hard time getting my arms around is he's done nothing to bridge the gap, though, Steve, right, in, in the inequities and the problems. Uh, in fact, he's, he's broadened them, the tax, the corporate tax cut of 2017, 18, et cetera, those kinds of things have delivered really nothing for most of his supporters. And yet they remain loyal to him. And, and perhaps have we, have we not learned the lesson of 2016, Steve, in, in, in both from a media standpoint and from a political observer standpoint is that we don't understand that sort of gap that exists between the people who think Trump is protecting them from their enemies. Seems to me that's the case. Yeah, for, for sure. I, I was just, as you were talking, I was just, you know, thinking about our conversations over the years about baseball. And I was thinking about like one of the, one of the indelible sports memories of my, of my childhood. And I, I promise I'll bring this back around. But I, I remember distinctly being with my dad in 1978, I was eight years old, seven years old, at the Yankees old-timers game. 
Yeah. And Billy Martin had already been fired once that season. And I remember Billy Martin was introduced by and I, I'm, Mr. Merrill. Was it Robert Merrill? who was the Yankee loudspeaker and that yeah. you know iconic voice. And 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 Billy Martin was announced onto the field. Not just that he was back in the stadium. Not just that he was playing in the old timers game, but they had fired Bob Lemon and Billy Manager. Billy Martin was returning to manage the Yankees again. And and I tell and I tell the story is that is that typically in the American character, right? You know, twenty twenty five to thirty percent of the country has always been crazy, right? They they just weren't able to connect with the other crazy people before we had social media and um and, and online. And it's made it easier. The golden the golden age of crazy people in in America, right? But there's but there's not substantially more. People will tolerate crazy, right? Yankee fans tolerated the insanity of that team. Oh, yeah. But it was a winning team. It was a winning team. And so when you look at Americans, they have a capacity to tolerate crazy and eccentric. But there's never been much way in the American character, not, not much room for tolerance for losing and incompetence. Right. And... It's it's tough when you look at the Trump administration to make the argument that that's what leadership that we're like. winning when you yeah. look at the when you when you look at the six o'clock follies right the the air night every night you know at six p.m. it's the air maybe it could be a new national tradition we all gather around our tables the airing of the grievances right at six <laughs> six p.m. right and the denunciations the, the for everything that's gone you know for gone wrong but but there's, but there's no there's no way in my view any yeah. person can look rationally at what's playing out exactly from the imprecision of the communication the nonsensicalness of the communication, just a series of ad hominem statements that make no sense in context, you know, serial declarations about things that aren't happening that he claims to have had the scapegoating, the blame, all of it. Right. right? It's it's inconceivable, you know, that, that anybody can look at that, right. Objectively and say, Hey, you know, that's our, that's our boy, you know, let's that's our guy. Years. Yeah. Now, and by the way, by the way, it was Bob Shepard. It just popped into oh, my Bob head. Shepard, Bob Shepard. Yeah. At the, the stentorian voice at Yankee stadium. Yeah. Yep. And I, and I, maybe it was Merrill who sang the, sang the it, national anthem. But it, but it's interesting to hear that storyline and link to Trump. And this was kind of an interesting week last week where you know Trump had said that he will make the call as to when people go back to work and we return to our, our new normal. And what was interesting is to see a couple of Republican governors take him on a bit. Um, and I'm thinking about Mike DeWine in, in Ohio, who seemingly has handled this situation better than most. So if you're an elected Republican, and you have Donald Trump in the White House, how do you navigate your political space? And particularly when you look at those that are running for Senate uh, in this next year, how do they navigate in and around Trump in order to still get their message out and survive? Well, let me me make a couple of observations about that. First, I I think that when you look at politics, right, we're we're reminded through all of this, right, politics is about life and death. Mm -hmm. These are life and death decisions 
did made in the Oval Office, right? To a, to a lesser degree, we're seeing, right, life and death decisions can be made in state capitals also, right? So I, I just want to look at, right, three Republican governors, right? And they're distinct, right, from the other governors that I'm going to talk about in a second, like DeSantis in, in Florida, uh, the governor in North Carolina, who said he had no idea that, you know, it could asymptomatically spread five weeks after most of the country understood that. So you have, let, let's look at, you know, Governors Baker, Hogan, and DeWine. And right, these aren't MAGA governors, and they understand their responsibility, and they can't indulge the whims and the ego of the president or people who are going to die in their states. And these are serious people uh, who are serious leaders of government. And in Mike DeWine's case, right, you know, this is, this is what it looks like when you have someone in charge who has experience you know, from the U.S. Senate to the U.S. House to the attorney general of the state to the governorship. He knows what he's doing. And, and Ohio is lucky to have experienced practitioner uh, of public service, you know, at the helm of the state in a, in a moment of, of real crisis. Um, you have some Democratic governors, right, you know, that have long experience in executive positions um, inside of government. You know, famously, I think Andrew Cuomo Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think um, also Gavin Newsom um, in, in California, who's done a spectacular job. And then you look at governors um, in states like Florida with DeSantis, and you see the clownishness of the response, the recklessness of it, the slowness, the, the indecision, the, and, and the leadership style that you know, mimics in a lot of ways Trump's, right? It's lessfully ignorant. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it just doesn't matter, right? You know, not going to listen to science, going to indulge in all the politics and all the craziness. And unfortunately, in those states, more people are going to die than otherwise would have had to. But what we're what we're seeing to some degree in the country really is the irrelevancy, right, of the of the federal government, right. how broken it is in this response. It can't it can't do anything. And you know, at the end of the day, Trump can go up there and talk about the tests all he wants, right? The truth is, he can't get a test. Right. And we're not yep. going to be able to open the, the economy up until so you can have testing. And, you know, the, the issue and this is, you know, I'll just say this, um, you know, and this is an observation, you know, when, when you spend time out of the country. Right. When you're when you're out of the United States. Right. You're, you're able to access news about what's going on in the rest of the world. It's, it's not easy to do in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, right. To understand like deeply what's going on in Europe, what's going on in Asia. But you look what's going on in Europe. You look what's going on in other parts of the world. Every one of those countries has a more sophisticated response than does the United States of America. And, and the truth of the matter is, is when we look back at governance in our country, right, over, over recent years, right, you look at Congress, for example, right, the ability just to keep the government open is a cause for celebration. <laughs> so the idea that we'd have a real crisis, right, and you'd be able to see some type of response that makes sense across the board is just belied by the reality of what we've seen play out over recent years. So to, to directly to answer your question is that I think if you're a governor, you have actual responsibilities, right? The response is one thing. I think if you're a U.S. senator, right, I think it's another thing. And, you know, look, I think you look at these programs, um, the PPP program, I mean, I, I think the level of abuse in that program is going to be shocking to people. Uh, mm-hmm. People who need it aren't getting it. People who are getting it don't need it. 
nevertheless, it's just one more federal program that, that doesn't work. And it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And we're going to get to the end of this, right? And look at where did the $2 trillion go? And more on top of that, no one's going to have any idea. And what's true is that the Great Recession really colored the next two presidential elections after it, right? It was certainly the one that right. occurred during it, the 08. I was involved in, but 12 and 16 as well. And the hangover from this event is going to endure maybe for the rest of our lives. And I say that as someone who will be turning 50 later this year. Oh, gee. That's, that's young, Steve. Come on. That's, I just turned 60, and I, I can barely stay awake past 8 o'clock. So, I, I, Steve, I listened to you, and it's so persuasive. So how do you boil that down into something that's digestible to the, to the people you talked about that are persuadable in, in this election? Because here, I point out something. When I talk to people in business, uh, people who are intelligent, involved in the markets, let's say, they say all the same things as you. But at the same time, they also say, you know, he's, he's not fit to lead, but he's right about a few things. He's right about China. He's right about the press. You know, they believe that even given all of the, uh, you know, problems that this guy has, uh, uh, he speaks basic truths. So how do you message in this election the what you just said to us in a simple and persuadable way i mean look at, at the end of the day right you know there there is a central fact right that didn't exist you know even 60 or 90 days ago and at that point you know my my intensity of conviction about his needing to go isn't much greater today than it was then right but <laughs> but, but there's a material fact that's different right which is yep. This is a guy who ran on uh, Make America Great Again. And now let's look at the record. What, what, do, we, what do we have here? We, we're we're going to have 60, 70, 80, 90,000 dead Americans that didn't, that didn't have to be. Uh, an economic catastrophe that didn't have to be. Um, if we project ahead a few weeks where we see the premature openings that he's stoking, right, we're going to see a second wave, which will put an additional burden on the, on the economy. And so the, the work of recovery here is going is to take, take many, many years. And by the time we get a little bit deeper into this election, you know, those stark facts, I think, are going to be at the core. And, you know, Joe Biden is going to have to make a case, you know, to fire Donald Trump. Right. But I, but I think right. the message is you're fired. He's done a terrible job. You know, there, there's nobody in, in the country unless you went short on the market and you're a speculative investor, and there's a couple of those, but there's nobody in the country who's going to be able to look and say, Hey man, I'm better off. I'm better off. You know, yeah. than I, than I was for, than I, than I was four years here, right? Everybody, right. Who, who is dealing with this, right. is dealing with this in a personalized way. Right. I mean, it's, it's a difference if you got older kids or you got younger kids or no kids, Definitely. right. You have, right. you know, you have young couples with no kids in small spaces, you know, on week seven, trying to work around each other from home. You have people <laughs> who work in the hospitality or service industries, yep. right. Like who have no work at all. You have everybody tracking everybody is under stress in their own way and are processing what's going on in this country, in the world, in their own way as well. The meaning of all of this, uh, the implications of all of it, I, I think will clarify as we move out from early spring, deeper into summer, 
as we start to see the long-term impact of all of this. And, and the, the reality is you see Donald Trump every day standing up there trying to rewrite history, rewrite the facts of what happened, right? You know, the mob, right. who, could have, who could have known? No one could have known, right? <laughs> and none of that is true. You know, and at the, end, at the end of the day, there's not been a lot of evidence to suggest that a majority of the country is predisposed to buy the bullshit. Though, though we know that structurally in American politics that, you know, his trading range has been between 42 and 46 percent. Yeah. Um, you know, 46 percent, you know, is, is, is enough on a good night to get him reelected. 42 percent isn't. You know, Vice President, Vice President Biden is going to have to put together a coalition of people in this country. It's basically all the Democrats, a majority of the independents, and some Republicans who say, hey, we want better than this. Yeah, that's right. So, Steve, so Steve, you've been great in terms of focusing in on message. But looking at the politics here is you guys support, and I'm saying this as, a, as, a, as somebody who grew up in the Democratic Party, was a former press secretary to a Democratic United States senator in Fritz Hollings, as you push hard to elect uh, Vice President Biden, what are the implications for Republicans to hold on to the Senate? And how do you, uh, you, you know, I know you still have lots of friends in the Republican Party and lots of them are joining you in this effort, but how do you balance the two? And is it easy for voters to balance the two? You know, look, I, you have to have faith. And, you know, I think one of the principal virtues in politics that's been missing from our political life for way too long is, is the notion of restraint. Mm-hmm. And the, the reality is if Vice President Biden is, is elected, he, he's not going to be elected to fulfill uh, the progressive wish list, right? That's not what the mandate mm-hmm. is gonna be. And there's gonna be, there's gonna be serious work. And you hope that there can be restraint not majoritarianism in the in the uh, moving of legislation. I, I suppose the good news is that without 60 votes in the Senate, you know it's tough to pass a lot of stuff. But you know, the 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 reality is is when you look at the complicity of Republicans in the Senate, you look at the number of unqualified judges. You know, regardless of your ideological disposition, to the lack of oversight, the acceptance of the of the corruption, uh, the indecency, the sundering of our alliances, all of the stuff that Trump has done that has weakened the country and has put the country on a path of, of decline. It's just hard for me to understand what the argument is that, you know, we'd be better off with another six years of Mitch McConnell as the majority leader in the, you know, in the U.S. Senate. And, you know, and I, I, tend to agree more with him if you were just to go down on a policy index list mm-hmm. of, you know, issue by issue than I would with Chuck Schumer. But, you know, I, your character matters, Leo, at the, at the end mm-hmm. of the day. And, and, and let me, and let me also say too, I, I think that, I think the whole notion of, you know, you work for Fritz Hollins, Mike, um, you know, a conservative uh, Democrat from the South. And we spent our careers, you know, Gary worked in politics, you know, for George Pataki. 
But we debated politics, you know, for most of our careers between the 45-yard lines. But but every notion of political definition, right, and, and its meaning, is gone, right? So right. when you're talking about the government spent two trillion dollars, it started with, at eight billion, with, if you remember, right? <laughs> that was the right? first. Right. Two, two, we're talking about amounts of economic intervention into the economy that are just to be beyond conception. And so I think these time a limited government conservative, what does that mean? You know, in the era of trillion dollar deficits in a, you know, in good economic times. I mean, I think all this stuff is, is fool's gold, right? It doesn't mean anything anymore, right? And so we're, we're going to be in a long period of, of recovery. And the first requirement of that is to have some functionality in the federal government. And we have no chance of achieving that so long as Trump remains president of the United States in the hollowed out, you know, executive branch that, that, that he's mismanaged for four years. Steve, I, I want to translate that to, to business. And because of the uh, incompetence of the federal government, business has been forced to step forward a lot in this crisis and fill some of the role that uh, the relief role in many ways, and even the policy role. You've advised a lot of CEOs over the years. What would you be saying to CEOs today about how to run their company in this crisis, given the, the, what we're trying to balance in this country, which is economic activity and recovery versus personal protection, not only of employees, but of everyone, including the most vulnerable in our society? How do you, how do you think CEOs should be behaving? You know, there's a there's a couple of great you know great examples you know that that people can um, you know that people can go to you know Arnie Sorensen the CEO of Marriott um, mm-hmm. in a video laying off tens of thousands of people you saw someone with empathy and compassion and and decency people yeah. want to be told the truth they want to be dealt with directly they want to be dealt with honestly and. What, what companies, I think, what I would say to a C, CEO is, is this, is, is remember that in a, in a crisis, there's three components to all crisis communication. First is you have to speak accurately to the facts of the situation. You have to inform, which includes delivering bad news. Right. Second thing you have to be able to communicate is to ask people to sacrifice, to articulate the common purpose to talk to people about what is required of them in a moment, in a time of testing. And, and the third thing is then the optimism that comes from the credibility established in one and two to be able to make the argument that will be believed that you will prevail through these toughest of times. And all, all leaders have to be able to do those three things effectively in order to have effective communication with their mm-hmm. employees, with their, with their customers, whether you're Winston Churchill talking to the country after the defeated Dunkirk or, or the CEO of Marriott. You have, you have to be able to do those things. On top of it, you're going to see now the dividing line, and it will be a harsh and brutal border for people who wind up on the wrong side of doing the right thing in a moment where everybody's going to have a judgment placed against them in this kind of crisis. Did you do right? Yep. Or did you do bad? Were you a bad actor? Or were you a good actor? Did you, did you tell your employees no one was going to get laid off and then everyone got laid off 60 days later? 
Did you give yourself a big bonus? Did you pad the executives while screwing the janitor? All this is going to become clear. And so we're coming into an era where we're going to see political instability in this country and, and make no doubt about it. When you see, even though the numbers are small, people parading on state capitol lawns with their assault rifles and flags and demanding that Virginia and California be liberated, when you see hours-long food lines, um, we're, we're going to see instability politically. And when you see instability fueled by economic distress, it drives populism domestically. It drives right. nationalism internationally. And so you'll see both elements in our politics ahead. So, for example, if you are a Chinese company or have partnerships with Chinese companies in the technology space and the 5G space, like good luck with that in the United States. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. When we talk about when we talk about right, you know, manufacturing our pharmaceuticals, you know, which is basically done in China, or you're going to see movements to bring that stuff home, right? And so you're you're going to see all over the world a rise in nationalism a rise in populism. You're going to see an assertive China, a declining and retreating America, the instability that comes from the wake of that reality. So our, our politics is going to be transformed by the portal we're going through that will take us from the era that existed before this to what will come after this. And, and make no mistake about this. And I, and I think that a lot of times we, we tend to overstate the significance of events, but, but this is, there has never been an event in human history that, that has more directly connected the world together in a moment than this one. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting to hear, hear you talk about where does it get us? Because the other challenge is uh, th th there's a part of, uh, a part of us, I think, that is optimistic that would hope that in many ways, uh, if not physically, at least mentally, it would bring us together. And the, uh, the road ahead doesn't look so simple. It, it's clearly provocative. And it will be interesting to see, you know, how this does get played out politically, near term and probably longer term. Um, I would be interested, um, do, you think the, do you think Republicans hold control of the Senate coming out of all of this? Well, if you if the election were tomorrow, they would not. But I, I don't know what the answer I don't know what the answer to that question is in November. Now, I, I will say this: when you when you look at just a couple of weeks ago, right, the chaos of the Wisconsin elections. This is something we're not talking enough about in this country, right? So when we when we look at COVID, right, we there's there's three dangers, you know, in my view to it, right? You know, the first one is obviously a public health danger. Second is the economic collapse and danger, but the third is a democracy danger, right? There's a there's a real imperiling of the election process, right? You can't you can't have a national election that goes down like what you saw in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. right? Where people are having to stand six feet apart outside on lines miles long. You know what the what the processes will be to preserve the integrity of the election, and and let's be clear about the loss of faith in the integrity of that process that we've seen yeah. in this country over the last five years. But um, but what we what we have coming, I mean, this is this is an urgent national discussion at the state level that that needs to be had about how will people vote 
particularly if some of the estimates about there being a second wave of this in the fall are in fact correct. Comes true. Exactly. Yeah. And does and does this ultimately create a constitutional crisis if in the end Trump loses but challenges the election? You know, he is long you know, going all the way back into the 16 race. You know, was, you know you're sitting, you know, I, I think a number of us with deep worry saying, hey, you know, if this guy loses the election. He's not going to he's not going to concede. He's not going to concede to the legitimacy of the election. And. That's dangerous in a democracy. And it's a trend we've seen with politicians from both parties who don't like the result, don't concede the election. And, you know, the, and I, the, the important thing to understand is that, you know, in a democracy, you know, the legitimacy of the election is granted by the loser to the winner, right? With the belief right. that, hey, we'll get them next time, right? The, you know, I've been on both sides of this in my career, and um, you know, winning is more fun than losing. But you know, the first <laughs> person sure. who the first person who who called you know, Barack Obama, Mr. President Elect in America, that mattered wasn't his advisors. It was John McCain, yeah. who in that act granted legitimacy to his to his presidency by conceding the election. And so this that's a trend line that's very worrisome in a democracy. Well, Steve, this has been fantastic and, and provocative, as we expected. Where can uh, where can our listeners get more information on the Lincoln Project? Just go go on to Twitter, look up the Lincoln Project, just Google it in, and up it'll pop, and all sorts of good stuff on the website about how to get involved. Yeah, it's very well done, very well done. Well, Steve, thank you for being on the Crux, and uh, good luck with everything that that you're working good to on. Good you guys. Okay, take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.